Amen. Thanks so much, worship team. Ooh, I was getting a little emotional singing that song. It's pretty neat. We've been, been listening to the recording that David made of it and talking about it, and, and it's pretty cool to hear it um, as it was meant to be sung with our whole church family. So uh, what a blessing that was to me. I pray that it was to you as well. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 2. We're going to be in just three verses this morning. going to be in verses 14 through 17. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. Before we begin, I want to tell you about something that I'm really excited about that we are doing for Advent this year. Now, traditionally in the church calendar, the season of Advent is the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. And this year, we want to take full advantage of that time to really prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming of our Savior. I know it's cliche, you say it all the time, but it's, it's true. It's so easy for that part of Christmas, like the real meaning of Christmas, it's so easy for that to kind of sneak up on us. And now this year with all these uh, supply chain issues going on, right, all your Christmas presents are stuck out in the ocean right now and everyone's saying we better plan ahead, you better if you're, you know, think about what you're going to be getting people for Christmas and order it way ahead of time so that you're ready on Christmas Day. And we were just talking as a staff like, man, wh- how cool would it be and what would the Lord be able to do if we took that same kind of preparation and applied it instead to planning how we're going to celebrate the birth of our Savior, I think the Lord could do some really neat things in our lives. And so this year, we're going to do a four-week sermon series leading up to Christmas. So we have the next two weeks, we're going to be in this week, and then the next two weeks, we're going to be in James. And then for four weeks, starting the week after, so it's actually leading up to the day after Christmas, since Sunday falls on the 26th this year. But for those four weeks, we are going to be doing a Christmas series through these four weeks of Advent. And as a part of that, we have actually... uh, purchased one of these books uh, for every single family in, in the church. So this is a book. It's called Ash- Unwrapping the Names of Jesus. It's by somebody, well, I just can't pronounce her name. I'm very sorry. Asherita, and then the last name is C-I-U-C-I-U. Anyone have a stab at what that could possibly be? I've been saying choo-choo, but I don't know how you say it or not. But Asherita uh, C-I-U-C-I-U is her name, and we've, bu- we've bought one of these books uh, for every family in our church, and it's a devotional, so there's five days uh, for four weeks that you do a short devotional uh, by yourself or as a family, and then uh, that will get us ready, if you're doing those devotionals, it'll get us ready for the topic that we're going to be preaching on that week, and then there's different activities that can go along with it, we're going to be supplying like a little family activity pack, I think, to go along with it as well uh, for you to do with younger kids so they can get the most out of it as well, but we're just going to pray and ask that the Lord would really use this time that we're setting aside to prepare our hearts uh, to celebrate the birth of our Savior. We just don't want it to sneak up on us, right? We don't want it to all of a sudden be Christmas Day and think, man, I, I'm not even really in a mental place to be celebrating the birth of Jesus. We, wanna, we want uh, the Lord 
to really do a mighty work here. So our hope is, is that as we do this together as a church, our hearts are just going to be prepared uh, in a way that isn't hurried or jammed into the other traditions of Christmas, but it makes space. That's what it's about, making space in our hearts to give him the glory that he deserves. So starting next week, we have a bunch of these books right now, and starting next week, uh, we'll be giving them out over, over the next two weeks. So for every family, we have one for you, so make sure you get one over the next two weeks, and then we'll be kind of doing the devotions along with you and kind of doing some cool things as well. So I'm really excited about that and just ask that you would uh, just look forward to that as well and participate in this uh, with our church. All right, well, like I said, we're in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17 this morning. It's a thinker this morning. You're going to need to put on your thinking cap. So everyone, put on your thinking cap with me. Go ahead, all right? Most of you have them on. Some of you are already wearing them. Um, some of you refuse to put them on. That's okay. But, uh, put on your metaphorical thinking caps, and we are going to be diving into James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. But as always, let's pray and let's ask the Lord uh, that he would help us in this time. Heavenly Father, God. We are in awe that before the foundation of the world, you chose us to be adopted as sons and daughters, and that we are now holy and blameless before you, not by works that we've done, but all because of what Christ has done for us, Lord. And I pray that as we look to your word this morning in James chapter 2, which talks about the necessity of works, God that you would help us have eyes to see and ears to hear uh, what this means and how it applies to our lives, God. So give me uh, wisdom, guard my tongue as I preach. Give me a humble heart, and I pray that uh, together we would just grow in our Christ-likeness because of what you have for us in James chapter 2. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're uh, currently in week 9 of what was originally intended to be a 12-week series through the book of James. And as you can tell, we are a little bit behind in that. We're not going to be wrapping up James in the next three weeks. We're only in chapter 2. We won't even be finishing chapter 2 until next week. So we were on, at the beginning, we were on track to finish it up right before Christmas, and now we're on pace to finish probably when our uh, four-year-old son uh, gets to high school is about when we'll be uh, finished with the book of James. So uh, I, I'm always thankful for you. I think I should say this a lot, but I'm always thankful for, for Jerry because uh, Pastor Jerry, I all, it always just drives me nuts how I can't keep a schedule worth anything, and Pastor Jerry just says, Mike, don't worry about it, just preach the word, and however far we get is however far we get, and so that's just kind of, uh, once we lost our schedule in James, it's all gone out the window, but there's just, there's so much to savor in it. I thought initially in my first kind of reading and studying through it, it's like I said it's, at the beginning, it's, very, it's a pretty short book and it's very practical, so I thought we'd be able to take pretty large chunks and move our way quickly through it, but there's just so much to savor. Uh, we, uh, after uh, we ran the half marathon last week, Emily and I rewarded ourselves on our way back up to Tipton from Indy. We stopped at Cheesecake Factory and got a couple of pieces of cheesecake. I got the Godiva cheesecake, which is my favorite, and Emily got the Oreo, which is her favorite, and uh, I don't know if uh, uh, at least for us, uh, these when you get a piece of Cheesecake Factory cheesecake, that's like you savor that, right? Like every, you just like, like take little bites. It's not the kind of dessert that you just pound through in a sitting. Some of you are like, yeah, I could pound through that in 10 minutes, no problem. But for me, at least, I like to savor it and make it last, you know, three, four days, have a few bites each day kind of thing and make it last as long as we can because it's so rich and there's so much in there. And uh, that's how I feel about James. It's rich like a piece of Cheesecake Factory cheesecake and we don't want to uh, miss what God has 
for us. So we're savoring it and we're slowing down a little bit. And so we're only covering three verses this morning. And the reason for that is because we're really at a key passage in the book of James. Now, in our introduction to James, I shared that this has historically been a, a somewhat controversial book. In fact, even Martin Luther, the founder of Protestantism, who, the, like the guy who nailed the 95 theses on the door of All Saints Church in 1517, who started the Reformation, is the reason that we're not Catholic today. Like the, the Martin, That Martin Luther didn't think that James should be considered part of the New Testament canon. He didn't think it was inspired by God and it shouldn't be considered Scripture. Now, the main reason he didn't think it should be considered Scripture was this passage starting in verse 14 of chapter 2 and going all the way through the end of the chapter. And we're, So we're going to be, Lord willing, covering these verses over the next two weeks. Now, first of all, obviously, we disagree with Luther in this, or we wouldn't be preaching through James, right? I wouldn't preach. God gave us 66 books, and there's a whole lot in them, so we don't need to look anywhere else uh, to preach. We're going to preach God's Word, uh, and uh, so we wouldn't be preaching James if we didn't think it was inspired by God. We believe that James is fully inspired by God and rightly considered in the canon of books that make up the Bible, which is God's divinely inspired Word to us. So, but even though we disagree with Luther, I didn't just want to kind of skip past what some of his hesitations were. I wanted us, in some ways, to feel the tension that Luther felt when it came to this passage. Because on the surface, it certainly looks like this passage contradicts other passages of Scripture. And in some ways, it appears to contradict the entire theology that our faith is based on. It contradicts, uh, on its surface, the song that we just sang. See, the question is, what is the basis of our salvation? That's a question we need to think about this morning. What's the basis of our salvation? How are we saved? And we said for the last two weeks, this is the third week in a row that we're saying this now, we are saved having nothing to do with what we've done and everything to do with what Christ has done for us. On the pie chart of works that contribute to our salvation, it's 0% us and 100% Jesus. We keep saying this. I hope that it is starting to, uh, to click. It's not us. It's only Jesus. This morning I was listening to a sermon as I was getting ready. Uh, it was a sermon on Isaiah 40. Uh, and uh, the pastor uh, said this. I love how he said this. He said, our faith is based on promise, not performance. I love that. I wish I would have thought of that three weeks ago. That's really good. Our faith is based on promise, not performance. It's based on the promise that you have in Christ, not by how you perform in your life. And praise the Lord for that, right? We live in a performance-based culture. That should be a weight like lifted off of our shoulders in a sense, that our value, our worth, the way that God looks at us has nothing to do with how we perform and everything to do what Christ, with what Christ has promised to us. Over and over again, we see that in Scripture, that our salvation has nothing to do with our own merits and everything to do with Christ. Like I said, we just sang this this week. It's interesting the timing that we introduced this song. wasn't planned this way, but it's inter interesting the timing. We just sang, I'm holy and blameless, 
just as you are, not by works we've done, but because we're in Jesus Christ. And yet, now, here comes James in chapter 2 with what appears to be a total contradiction of that principle. It almost feels like he's completely going against everything we believe and everything we preach every single week when you first look at it. So I want you to look at this with me, and I want us to really think about this together. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If someone says they have faith but doesn't have works, can that faith save him? He's asking a rhetorical question, and the implied answer that he wants us to, put, to insert there is no, it can't. He says that faith without works can't save you. Verse 17 reiterates this. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What gives? We've been just saying it's all about faith. It's not about works. Now James says faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then here's the kicker. Here's the one that's like, that's really was hard for me when I looked at it this week. In verse 24, verse 24 almost looks like it was written to intentionally contradict what Paul said in Romans 3, 28. I want you to look, I have both verses on the screen here, and they're kind of lined up so you can see it. Look at it. James 2, 24, a person is justified. He agrees with Paul there for the first two lines. James, by works and not by faith alone. What does Paul say? A person is justified by faith alone. And not by works of the law. What do we do with that? Right? This does not look like two authors who agree with each other, does it? Would you read that and say, those two men are in lockstep. They agree 100%. No. So what do we do with that? Kind of feels, I've kind of felt like, ugh, uh, I don't know what to do with this this week. And uh, I'm, I'm showing this here. For a couple of reasons. Number one, it's important for us to look at it. Number two, though, I never ever want us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, who believe that the Bible is fully inspired, fully inerrant word of the word of God, who has given us minds to be able to understand it and the Holy Spirit to be able to comprehend it. I never want us to shy away from any sort of controversy when it comes to God's word. Like we're too afraid to look into it. Because there are people who claim that Scripture has thousands and thousands of contradictions. And that there's no way, how could you ever believe the Bible? Because it just contradicts itself at every single turn. So I wanted to show us basically the biggest contradiction, or at least one of them in Scripture, that people would claim was a contradiction. So we can see, actually, this is no contradiction at all. And when we see that, it's going to give us more faith that God's word is, in fact, fully divinely inspired. It is fully inerrant. It never contradicts itself. And it is all for our teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So I hope that even looking at this, even sitting in this for a moment where we feel like, ooh, James says a person is justified by works and not faith alone. Paul says a person is justified by faith and not works of the law. Even as we see that and really feel the fullness of like what appears to be a contradiction, that's actually going to serve to strengthen our faith. Because here's what's important. Paul is 100% right in Romans 3.28. 
A person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. Paul's right. A person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. That's 100% right. Guess what? James is right when he says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James is 100% right as well. And there's a key to understanding this, which is to recognize that James and Paul here are counteracting two different theological errors in the people that they're writing to, through two different fallacies about God. Paul is writing to one audience. James is writing to another. Paul is writing to an audience who is tempted to believe that salvation comes from what we do, that we can follow the law in a way that actually will earn us salvation. That's, what, that's the audience that Paul is writing to. And so Paul says, no, you can't earn your way to salvation. It's only by faith. You are not justified by works of the law. And he's right to say that. But James, here's the key part, James is writing to a completely different audience who are struggling with a completely different theological error. James's audience, some people in his audience that he's writing to, are struggling with this idea of, uh, I don't know if you want to say, Christianity light, diet Christianity. The idea that you can just claim that you follow Jesus and just say, yep, I believe in Jesus. And like from there, as you just say the words, you're just smooth sailing, you're, uh, you're good to go. And James is saying, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the key to understanding this is in verse 14. Look at it with me again. And have your pen ready because I'm going to have you underline something in this. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him. There's a key word that I want you to underline in your Bibles. It's the word that. The word that. Can that faith save him? He's not saying can faith save somebody, like a true, genuine, authentic faith. He's saying can the kind of faith that has no substance behind it, can that faith save someone? And the answer is no. Fake faith can't save you. But real faith can. That's the first point we need to see this morning. Let me illustrate this. So raise your hand if you are a big fan of the Marvel movies. Raise your hand. You like, you know, they've gotten a little ridiculous recently. We can all agree. There's maybe too many of them. But you're a fan of the Marvel movies, generally speaking. I, I liked them at first. I, generally, when I watch these movies, my number one thought is just being stressed out about how long it would take to clean up like the 30 skyscrapers that collapse every single uh, movie. But uh, so say that let's let's like imagine we're in a world, though, where like the Marvel universe is real and Thanos, that's the bad guy's name, right? Thanos, the really bad guy. He's like, he's here and he's stationed himself at the courthouse and he's like getting ready to destroy Tipton. Oh no, this is not good. Now imagine I, Pastor Mike, said, don't worry. I'm going to go to Party City and get a Captain America costume. And I'll have Mike, Mike Harlow get a Hulk costume. And I'll have Nick Cox get a Black Panther costume. And together, <laughs> we'll uh, save Tipton. How much good would that do against the real Thanos if it was us in the costumes Nick, Nick says he feels pretty good about it, but the rest of you should not feel uh, good about your chances at all. 
Put it another way, let's say, how many of you, uh, well, maybe another illustration for others that aren't Marvel people, but maybe you're a Colts fan. How many of you old, own a Peyton Manning jersey? Raise your hand if you own a Peyton Manning jersey. All right, let's say back in the day when Peyton Manning was a Colt and they're playing against the Patriots, the stinking Patriots and the AFC Championship, and Peyton Manning goes down injured and you're at the game and you've got your jersey on. You say, don't worry, I've got the jersey too. I'm going to go in, I'm going to play quarterback, and we're going to win this game. How good would Colts uh, Nation feel about their chances to win that game if it's just you and your jersey? Not very good. Here's the point. You can put on those clothes, so to speak, of saying you have faith, but if there's no real substance behind it, if what's actually true about your life doesn't match that, that kind of faith does just as much good to save you as me and Mike and Nick in our, uh, in our silly costumes doesn't do any good at all. It's worthless. It's fraudulent. Fake faith can't save you. That's the point that James is making. He's not saying that you need to do these works to earn your way to salvation. He's saying if you have a fake faith that is not backed up by the way you live, you are on shaky ground. And so if fake faith doesn't save you, the question we should be asking is, what does real faith look like then, right? If fake faith doesn't save me, what does it look like to have real faith? I'm very glad you asked, because that is the next point in my sermon, and that's exactly what James says in the next couple verses. Fake faith talks the talk, but real faith walks the walk. Look with me at verse 15. James loves to give these hypothetical examples to illustrate his point. He's gives an, just like he gave one about the rich man and the poor man entering the church, he gives another one about people in need here. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's talking about people who lack the means to provide for their basic needs like food and clothing. He's probably even, he says brothers and sisters, so he's probably referring to uh, other believers. He says, how much good would it do for them if they come to you in need and instead of giving them clothes and food, you just offer these like vague spiritual sounding words. Oh, go in peace, my dear brother, my dear sister, be warmed. Oh, you're, you're standing here freezing cold because you don't have a coat? Well, uh, guess what? I'm going to pray for you so you can be warm just like me. Maybe you'll find one. You're starving, you don't have food, I'm going to pray that you can find some food so that you can be filled just like me and you don't have to worry about that. I'm definitely going to be praying for you, brother, sister. How much good does that do? It does no good. James is saying fake faith makes it sound like you care, but real faith actually does something about it. Real faith has real action tied to it. It's not just empty words. Now there's at least two objections I can think of that you might be thinking to this. The first objection might be, like, so what are you just saying? I just have to give to the poor and then my salvation is secured and, and that's not what he's saying at all. But he's giving this example of what true faith looks like. 
And true faith will bear true fruit. And part of that fruit does include a concern for the poor and needy. And so if you don't have a concern for those in need at all, you can make it sound like it maybe if you don't have a concern, then you're on shaky ground, James says. The second objection might be one that you're thinking right now, which is, Pastor Mike, like, it's not always that cut and dry what to do, like how to help people. Sometimes people are trying to take advantage of you, right? Sometimes maybe somebody asks for money or something, and it wouldn't even necessarily be the best thing to give them money, right? It might actually be more harm, do more harm than good if I did that. And I think you're right in one sense. Like, I don't think this passage is calling us to necessarily throw all wisdom and caution out, out the window when someone asks for help. In fact, this is something our neighbor's team works really hard on each month. We have people who uh, will come to our church every month, a handful of people usually, and they'll, uh, different people, and they'll ask for either rent assistance or financial assistance in some way. And, uh, and we have money that we set aside. Uh, we want to err on the side of generosity, and we want to help when we can, but we also want to be wise about how we do it. And so that's why we have a team that meets and looks over their applications and prays about it and asks God for direction and, and tries to make them the wisest decisions with these things as possible. And so I don't think this passage is saying don't be wise in how you help. And sometimes, let's be honest, it isn't always clear what the best way is to help. But what James is saying, we also don't want to miss the point, is that he's, he's, he's speaking against this kind of like vacuous faith that just it doesn't have anything behind it. You just keep thinking of me in a Peyton Manning jersey trying to play in an NFL game. There's no, there's nothing there. No skill there, right? And when James is speaking against is people who can say these good spiritual sounding words, and we've all been in the church long enough, we know how to do that, right? It doesn't take long to be in the church to know how to say the right words to make it sound like uh, you care about others. It doesn't take long to be in the church to make it sound like you know the right words to make it sound like you're just really spiritual when deep, deep down you know your heart, and you know where you're really at. So what James is saying is be careful that you're not just speaking these words of go and be warmed and be filled when there's actual things that you can be doing to warm and fill these people. And so if there's a need in front of you, and you know God has given you the means and the ability to help meet that need, we cannot, as people who are filled with the love of Christ, who overflow, should be overflowing with the love of Christ because we've been given this unbelievable love, we cannot, as people, turn a blind eye to those needs and just say, go in peace and be warmed and be filled. It's an easy to talk the talk. It's another thing to walk the walk and real faith walks the walk. Real faith manifests itself in real action. Another way to say that, fake faith is dead, but real faith works. Real faith works. That's what James is saying, verse 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself, meaning claiming to have faith without actually anything in your life giving evidence that you're saved is meaningless and it's not real faith. Real faith works. And I tell you, 
one of the biggest blessings about being your pastor is I get to see you living this out all the time. Like, we're doing this, church. I see this over and over again. And I get so pumped up. Nothing pumps me up more than when I see evidence of you guys caring for one another's needs. When there's a need in the body, and one of you finds out about that need and meets that need. That's awesome. I could give examples, but I couldn't. I, we don't have enough time for me to give the countless, countless examples of ways that I get to see that over and over again. You're doing a great job with this church. And so, A, it's a reminder of you're doing these things. I'm doing these things because of what Christ has done for me already. And this is me living out that faith in an authentic and real way. But it's also a reminder for us to check our own hearts and say, man, if I'm cold to needs around me, if I'm not seeing, or if I'm seeing and not doing anything about these needs that God's showing me, I need to make sure that I am, in fact, living out my faith. Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Real faith comes from people who have really had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, and now everything about them has changed. They couldn't possibly keep living the same way. How could you? It doesn't mean you're perfect, Lord knows we are not a perfect people. I'm not looking at a single perfect person right now, believe it or not. And you aren't either. We're not a perfect people. We don't live this out perfectly. But if you've really come to Jesus, if he's taken that burden of sin from your shoulders and nailed it to the cross and you bear it no more, if he's made you holy and blameless then your life will overflow with works that demonstrate that reality that has already happened. And those works are not in earning your way to get there. It's an overflow of what's already happened in your heart. Owen and I got to spend some time uh, this week riding in the combine, harvesting corn for you farmers out there. I know you're, uh, some of you are just about finished, some of you are finished, some of you are close, some of you aren't as close as you'd like to be right now. But I, uh, I just, every time I get to ride in the combine during harvest, I love it. I get so excited. Owen gets excited too, and he's four, and uh, I, he's you know, jumping up and down so excited. And I act like a four-year-old whenever I get to see how the whole process works. It just amazes me. And we're sitting there, and, and uh, just kind of, it's mesmerized by seeing the corn come in, and, and just thinking about... Uh, the finality of harvest, about the way that um, the, cy- the cycle of the seasons and you plant and grow and God waters the crop. And the crop grows and then it's reached maturity and it's time to harvest. And I was thinking about the parable of the sower that Jesus told and how it relates exactly to this passage that we're talking about this week. I'm sure you're familiar with this parable. A sower goes out to sow seed, and and where it lands, depending on where he throws the seed, where it lands determines what happens to that seed. Some of it gets picked up and carried away by birds. Some of it gets choked out by thorns, but some of it grows to full maturity. And it's a metaphor, this parable, for our hearts and the way that we receive the gospel. And Jesus explained the meaning of the parable. So he told the parable, and then he explained what it means to his disciples. And I thought as we close this morning, it would be good to look at what Jesus said about the parable of the sower. So uh, we'll go to verse 18 on the screen, and I'm going to start reading from there. It says this, Hear then the parable of the sower. 
When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So these are people who maybe they've heard the gospel, but never once has it even penetrated in their heart even a little bit, right? They just have rejected it their whole lives. It's true of many people. Verse 20, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but he endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is someone who they, they say they believe in Jesus, but that root doesn't sink down, and as soon as that persecution, as soon as that tribulation, that trial comes, they realize maybe this whole following Jesus thing isn't worth it. And they walk away. May that not be true of us. Verse 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. People who, again, maybe they respond positively to the gospel at first, but they get distracted by uh, cares of the world, worries of the world. Maybe they're uh, enamored by riches of the world. And it carries them away from the gospel. In verse 23, may this be true of all of us. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. Catch that last part? He indeed bears fruits. Some people will reject the gospel right away and never believe. Others will get excited when they first hear it, but they'll walk away eventually and show that it wasn't true faith. But the one who is truly saved will always bear fruit. If your heart is the soil that has accepted the gospel, you will bear fruit. Now, each of us have different yields, right? Some of us bear more fruit than others. Hundredfold, 60, 30. We have different yields, depending on how emotional you are. We have different moisture content as well sometimes. I thought that was a really good joke. Anyways. <laughs> but if you're truly a follower of Jesus, if your faith is genuine, you will bear fruit and you will endure to the end until the Lord of the harvest calls you home. And this idea that following Jesus means you will bear fruit is consistent with what Jesus says. It's consistent with what Paul says. It's consistent with what the rest of the New Testament authors say, and it's consistent with what James says. There is no contradiction here. A follower of Jesus bears fruit. If you're following Jesus, you will bear fruit. And as we come to a close this morning, there's one more thing that I want to address, and it's this idea of God's sovereignty when it comes to your personal story, when your personal testimony. So for some of us, there's just going to be questions that we won't be able to answer on this side of heaven. I have conversations with um, several of you where your testimony might be something like, uh, I, when I was real little, I believed in Jesus. I, I said that I believed in Jesus. But then for most of my life, my growing up and even into my adulthood, like I wasn't following Jesus at all. And now, like God's really done an amazing thing in my heart. And I'm living for him in a way that I never did for my whole life. So I said back when I was, you know, six years old that I believed in Jesus. But I never really got it until right now. And I've had conversations with some of you where the, the question has come up like, so what does that mean about, like, when was I saved? 
You know, if I had, let's say I had died before I, I came to this place where I was really bearing fruit for the Lord, would I, would I have been saved at that point? And, and my answer that I give is usually pretty unsatisfactory, but it's just simply that it's not necessarily for us to know that. But praise God that you're living for him now and you're bearing fruit now. So for some of you, if that's you, if that's your story, and I think that's many of us, I just want to encourage you. Like sometimes your testimony is a little bit confusing. It's not always like this clear, cut and dry, like boom, this is when I uh, said I believed in Jesus and my life immediately changed from then. It's not always clear cut. And yet God's sovereign. He's the one who's working. And so if you are bearing fruit now, if you're following Jesus, if you're going at it 100% in your life, like praise the Lord and praise God that he brought you to this place. But let me just say too, as a word of caution and warning, church, that if you say you believe in Jesus, but your life does not and has never provided any evidence to that fact, that you've been changed by the love of Christ, let me just say, don't be comfortable because nothing in Scripture makes you feel comfortable in that place. And it's a hard truth, but it's true. If you're following Jesus, you will bear fruit. And again, this is why it's such a joy for me to see when people bear fruit because it's evidence. God is working here in this place among us. The God of the universe has taken notice of us and he's moving. And it's awesome to see. If you're not bearing fruit in your life, if you have no evidence that you're really following Jesus, let me just say, hey, hey, it's not too late. You're still here. I love to say this, you're still breathing, guess what? God's not done with you yet. So seek him and pursue him. But also consider this a warning. Sometimes in God's word, he warns us, and that is a blessing, and that is for our good. It's like sometimes, as a parent, you gotta warn your kids of danger, right? And if you didn't ever warn your kids of things that could kill them, what kind of parent would you be? God warns us sometimes in his word. And it's hard to, it can be hard to hear, but it's so good. And if you're hearing the warning and you're alive, praise God. It's not too late. Seek him. Follow him. And if you are seeking him, you are following him, you are bearing fruit, then dear brother and dear sister, let this passage be a comfort to you. Even though we still sin, even though no one's living this out perfectly. But you can find this sweet and beautiful comfort in this passage that your salvation has been purchased by Jesus Christ. And now your life is a reflection of what he has done. Because we're holy and blameless just as he is, not by works we've done, but because we're in Jesus Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. Amen? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for your word. God, where would we be without your word? I shudder to think. Yet so often I take it for granted, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us helpless and hopeless. We thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us lived a perfect life, 
and died a death that we deserve and rose again three days later and conquered death once and for all so that all who believe would have eternal life. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room who does not believe that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would repent of their sin and they would say, God, I believe, I believe. We know that when they do that, God, you welcome them into the family of God with open arms. We forget what lies in our sinful past and we press on running the race for the glory of God. God, do a mighty work in this place. Do a mighty work among us. We pray, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. I pray that we would be a people who overflow with actions that reflect what's already happened in our hearts. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.